Hello and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast Episode 3. This is Adam and today we're going to be talking about how the grinding down of youth and how it repeats itself. How youth lash out and rebel against their family, their teachers, the police, the government. And we're going to talk about films that have a theme of young people. And by young people, I mean people between young people between the ages of single digit to early 20s. Young people, people of youth, people who are still trying to figure out the world, people who are uh, filled with hormones. They are lacking in um, relevant life experience, maturity, maturation, possibly not present. And we're talking about specifically those types of troubled young people, troubled young adults, and how they lash out their frustrations against those who they deem to be oppressing their lives and in some cases those young people who are incarcerated particularly at a juvenile level so let's get started. First movie is entitled Over the Edge. Over the Edge from 1979. Directed by Jonathan Kaplan, who was one of the many directors who came up under the great Roger Corman. And even directed the Student Teachers a film from 1973 for Corman's New World Pictures. Now, Over the Edge was inspired by um, true events. Most movies that say that they're based on a true story inspired by true events are mostly lying, but saying that... Um, based on a true story, based on whatever, inspired by whatever. It just sounds good. It adds a level of realness. And uh, we love that shit. So, but this movie was inspired. I mean, okay, here you go. A Nightmare on Elm Street was inspired by true events. Okay? The original Nightmare on Elm Street was based on an article that Wes Craven read about a young man in, I believe, Southeast Asia who refused to sleep because he feared that if he went to sleep, something in his sleep would kill him and he would never wake up. So he refused to sleep for days on end. And when his family got together to get him to go to sleep 
uh, and and reassuring him that there is no way he can die in his sleep. There's nothing waiting to kill you in your sleep. I believe they secretly gave him sleeping pills. And when he eventually went to sleep, guess what happened? He died in his sleep. Hmm. Strange. Very strange. And based on that article, uh, Wes Craven uh, developed the story of A Nightmare on Elm Street about a demon that is waiting for you in your sleep. And that's where he waits for you. So he can kill you because you can't run away from sleep. Okay? A Nightmare on Elm Street is based on true events. But Wes Craven didn't put that in the trailer for A Nightmare on Elm Street. That would have been awesome if he did. That would have been hilarious. But he didn't do that. Anyways, the film I want to talk about is uh, inspired by events described in the San Francisco Examiner in 1973. The San Francisco Examiner, in the Sunday, November 11th, 1973 edition, title, Mouse Packs, Kids on a Crime Spree, by Bruce Kuhn and James A. Fine, Fine Rock. Maybe it's Fine Rock. Like Fine Rock. Yes. Mouse packs. Gangs of youngsters, some as young as nine, on a rampage through a suburban town. One on a bike pours gasoline from a gallon can and sets it afire. Lead pipe bombs explode in park restrooms. Spray paint and obscenities smear a shopping center wall. Two homes are set ablaze. Antennas by the hundreds are snapped off of parked cars in a single night. Liquid cement clogs public sinks and water fountains. Streetlights are snuffed out with BB guns so often that they are no longer replaced. It sounds like a scenario from an underage clockwork orange. A futuristic nightmare fantasy. But all the incidents are true. They happened in Foster City, where preteen gangs, mouse packs, constitute one of the city's major crime problems. Foster City may be a fluke or a harbinger of things to come, but its experience reflects a rising tide of serious crime among preteen kids in the Bay Area. It is an experience that can propel a former chief of police onto the city's board of supervisors. It is a fact that can have confirmed liberals talking, quote, law and order. An articulate electronics worker in his mid-30s is moving his family out of a blue-collar neighborhood in Richmond because of the daily violence which his boys ages 9 and 11 are exposed to. His youngest 
was attacked near their home at knife point by another nine-year-old. Then there have been minor hassles with pre-teen hoods, ranging from lock picking to bicycle smashing. At elementary school, his sons see teachers slugged and must mingle with kids nine and ten who wearing look-alike jackets and hanging around together after school have incipient gangs going. Shakedowns are common. The elementary school youngsters are let out 45 minutes early so they won't be mugged by the junior high set. Quote, I feel mildly chagrined about cutting and running, the father says. But it's just an unending series of things. But when his family moves out, they may find they haven't left the preteen crime problem behind. Preteen mouse packs, some with up to 15 members, roam Foster City, where a fourth of the population is under 13. Last summer, the Foster City Parks Department sponsored a, quote, drop-in at a junior high gymnasium. Quote, within two months, the gym had been destroyed, pool tables ripped, ping pong tables broken, end quote. Said juvenile officer Rick Rivera. Quote, the program had to be canceled, end quote. Fremont police have been confronted with a rash of burglaries and aggravated assaults by pre-teens. Quote, crimes committed two years ago by 13-year-olds are now being committed by 10-year-olds, end quote, reports Sergeant Ken Coleman, head of juvenile division. In Concord, more than 25% of reported juvenile crimes occurs in the 13 and under age group. Available evidence indicates that although the majority of pre-teen crime is, quote, pretty minor stuff, in the words of one police official, the number of assaults is up sharply. In Santa Clara County, as assaults by boys and girls 12 and under has jumped 40% in the last two years. In San Mateo County, during the same time span, assaults have leapfrogged from only 4% of all crimes committed by those 12 and under to 13%. The only juvenile crimes in San Francisco which showed increases between 1970 and 1971 were assaults and robberies. Physical attacks on students and teachers in San Francisco elementary schools are five times as frequent as high as attacks in the senior highs. Police reports also suggest that preteen attacks are becoming more vicious. In Fremont this year, a 12-year-old was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon after he sliced off a schoolmate's ear with a heavy belt buckle during a fight. A Sacramento girl age six, visiting the San Francisco Zoo this summer, was beaten so savagely by a gang of girls ages 8, 10, and 11 that she required plastic surgery to restore her shattered face. In Berkeley, 18 months ago, five kids, including an 11- and 12-year-old, gang-raped a UC co-ed 
who had been sitting beside a lonely road watching the sunset. In the city recently, juvenile authorities have zeroed in on the escalating problem of purse snatching. Among the suspects are boys as young as eight, some of them barely four feet tall. During an eight-day stretch in the city, last month four purse snatches involved preteens. Two eight- or nine-year-olds knocked a 79-year-old woman to the pavement on Fulton Street. They kicked her, breaking her right leg, and fled with her purse. The loot? One dollar in change. An 85-year-old woman sitting in the hallway of a convalescent hospital was robbed by a boy aged between 12 and 15. He got 10 cents. The purse of a 65-year-old woman was snatched by a boy near the corner of Geary and Broderick. He was 8 or 10. A 33-year-old woman was robbed by a 10 or 11-year-old near the corner of Ellis and Laguna. The assailant was 4 feet 4 inches tall. He weighed 90 pounds. While the motive for purse snatches is obviously money, other incidents of preteen crimes are baffling. Two weeks ago in Garfield Park, a mother and her 22-month-old child were attacked by a small army of 8- to 10-year-olds, both male and female. The gang made up of whites, blacks, and Latins threw beer bottles and sand, chasing them to their home on 25th Street. One bottle banged against the young child's head. There was no explanation for the attack. Nor are there any ready answers for the entire phenomenon of pre-teenage crime. Probation officers and juvenile authorities suggest TV violence, permissiveness, and the exposure of youngsters to the realities of life at an early age. UC Berkeley criminologist Tony Platt thinks pre-teens might be, quote, learning from their older brothers and sisters who lived through the disruptive decade of the 1960s. Whatever the reason for the purse snatchings in the city, some authorities are concerned they may be seeing in the mouse packs of Foster City or in the increased viciousness of pre-teen assaults elsewhere, the tip of a trend. If the current pre-teen problem develops into a crime wave, it may crest at a flood level when the kids grow up. Quote, by the time you catch a 16-year-old shoplifter, you're dealing with a success. It took him years to develop that skill, end quote, says Robert Evans, director of East Palo Alto's Community Youth Responsibility Program. Inspector Merle Eaton, head of the Berkeley Police Juvenile Division, echoes the warning, quote, Some of our biggest adult criminal problems begin as kids who are arrested at six or seven for petty theft and malicious mischief, end quote. The solutions to preteen crime are not obvious, nor are they easy, 
In Foster City, police have retreated to the hard line. Last year, they tried, quote, all sorts, end quote, of different ways to deal with the problem short of arrest. This year, it's handcuffs. Ironically, mouse packs are the tip of a trend. It may be the current preteen generation, which is forced to come up with answers when it grows to maturity. So yes, Over the Edge was based on that San Francisco Examiner article. And uh, Charles S. Haas and Tim Hunter, screenwriters of the film, began working on the script shortly after the article was published. So Over the Edge was the film debut of Matt Dillon. And Matt Dillon, who you may know from uh, Rumblefish, he was in The Outsiders, Drugstore Cowboy, and he was in um, The House That Jack Built, uh, a movie I haven't seen. But uh, it's a Lars Van Trier film. And I've been wanting to see that for quite some time. But uh, I'll eventually get around to it. And maybe I'll uh, talk about it to you. But yes, it was his. It was his film debut. And the film itself like some of the other films I'm going to be talking about, have pretty good soundtracks. Uh, The soundtrack contains songs from Cheap Trick, The Ramones, and Van Halen. Just to name a few. And just a quick rundown of the movie. And if you don't understand, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, um, I don't review movies necessarily. I, these are usually movies that I already recommend. So if I'm talking about it, then you need to watch it. You need to own it and you need to, um, it's all you need to know really. (laughs) So over the edge. Um, quick rundown is a story of a fictional town in Colorado called New Granada. And it's a place that is, um, heavily populated by children and the town itself feels like It feels like the town I grew up in. It may feel like the town that you grew up in. Very suburban. Boring. All the parents are professional types. And places like that, like when I go back to my hometown, which is in Central California, in the San Joaquin Valley, 
if you just walk around the neighborhood I grew up in, it's quiet and the ambient noise of the neighborhood you like you feel like getting into some trouble like you feel like starting some shit there's something about a quiet suburb especially ones that have multi-generational architecture like layered and shingled on top of each other that just you just feel like getting into trouble i don't know what it is a lot of the neighborhood that i grew up in was sort of built in the sort of late 50s early 60s and then other surrounding areas nearby were um built in the 70s and 80s and then the farther out from the city center you get it gets like places that were built in the 90s and so on so as you drive through neighborhoods you can see sort of like the rings of a tree you can see the age of the town and every ring every sort of era has its own little crime problems rather if it's gangs poor white trash tweaker activity no, no matter where you go there's there's always some type of young crime going down you know graffiti artists people just like to vandalize shit in general People breaking into cars, people stealing shit from people's houses. Just giant, ridiculous parties. And all of the mischief that comes with that drug dealing and noise complaints, people shooting guns in the air in the middle of the night, you know, stuff like that. So this the the town of New Granada in the movie has that feel and it's sort of in the process of being built as well a lot of 80s movies are like that especially ones where there's like kids going on an adventure there's always like um like houses houses nearby still in still being built and that's what growing up was like for me so when i watch this movie i feel like you know, this is this because I was born in 82. This movie came out in 79. So when I look at this movie, it looks like sort of my older brother's era. He's four years older than I am. So like, like everyone, there was that overlap, that 70s and 80s overlap, just like there was an 80s and 90s overlap of and by overlap, I mean when you watch a movie or if you look at people's family photos, you can't really tell like what decade it is. (laughs) You know, if you look at pictures of me and my brother and even, you know, with, with our family in the, in the eighties, like it can easily be the seventies, 
Like everyone just had goofy hair and knee high socks and jean shorts, <laughs> big glasses. But yeah, so in this town of New Granada, they are um, there's it's heavily populated by children, and all the children actor. I love movies where children are portrayed as real like and and by real i mean they are mischievous assholes because kids are pretty brutal like they're they're a pain in the ass and movies like kids but when when kids came out that's when i was like like i was in that sort of kind of demographic you know like i grew up around a lot of like skaters i wasn't a skater i found skateboarding to be trivial and boring just like most things and i'm that way now i find most things to just be like a waste of time <laughs> except movies i think movies are a, a perfectly good way to spend time but when, yeah, getting back to how children are portrayed in film. And I like movies where kids are portrayed as degenerates, basically. <laughs> like, I, I, I like that for some reason. You know, I like Gummo and, you know, movies where even like Donnie Darko, you know, where, where kids are in their early teens and they're just they learn how to be shitty like they spent their entire elementary school career uh learning how to curse learning how to talk shit and learn how to build stock in whatever social group they happen to be in you know whether if you're a jock if you're a party kid or a weirdo which was kind of the group I fell into. The town I grew up in was weird. There was a lot of crossover in um, social groups. A lot of crossover in social groups. So, you know, um, when, like when I was in a high school, for instance, a lot of the jock kids, when they were not in football season, wrestling season, baseball season, they were partying with, you know, my group of people. The rest of the year, they, they were... They were, they were locked into whatever sport or academic whatever they were pursuing, but me and my friends were partying all through high school. So when they would be done with their season, they would come seek us out and would want to know where the party's at, would want to know where to buy weed, where to buy acid, where to buy mushrooms. <laughs> all those sorts of things and we were pretty welcoming you know we weren't we like my group of people we didn't really discriminate against you know uh that sort of thing like if people wanted to come have a good time you know the more the merrier so over the edge um it's a group it's a large group of kids of this town and they all have found sort of uh refuge in this recreation center in their town and 
it's supervised by this one lady who understands that kids are shitheads, kids, but kids need a place that they can go to. And her heart's in the right place, but they, I, uh, the, that character sort of feels like, okay, if the kids have somewhere to go, then they're not out on the street causing havoc. So this recreation center um, was sort of a safe place for the kids of New Granada. Oh, my God. There's an opening scene that just gate. Oh, okay. So there's, there's an opening scene where uh, two... Uh, two of the main characters are standing on an overpass and they shoot a like police car that's going under the overpass with a BB gun. And, and they, those, they end up actually, um, they actually end up getting, um, actually they don't get caught, but you know, the two are the the other main protagonists get uh, caught. Anyways, they, there was a, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I want to say I was probably, mm, how old was I? Was I, I wasn't in high school yet, but I wasn't quite, I don't think I was quite doing crimes yet either. So I think I was like, 11 or 12 and there was an overpass right near my house and I was walking through the neighborhood and it was one of those things where you had to walk over the overpass to get to the other side of the neighborhood. So I'm walking through the neighborhood and there's a sign on someone's lawn for, you know, whatever real estate sign, political sign. I don't know. I don't remember what it was, but it's, it was, it was stuck into the ground with a like wooden, like a wooden stick with a sharpened end. It was stuck in the grass. So I'm walking by and I just take the sign out of the lawn and discard the sign. And I just kept the wooden, uh, pole, the wooden, you know, um, stick basically. And it was, and it looked like a spear, you know, because the one end was sharpened and it was long and wooden. And I'm walking around, I'm kind of using it as almost like a walking stick. I walk over the overpass and I get right over the overpass, right, right over the center of the overpass. And I just decide I don't want this stick anymore. So I just chuck it over the overpass, chucked it over the overpass, and it almost hits. It didn't hit him. Let me just say that right off the bat. It didn't hit the guy, but a guy on a motorcycle swerved around it as it was hitting the ground. Now, from my recollection, I don't think that that guy was in any real danger, but... <laughs> oh, my God. I totally forgot. I wasn't alone. I was with a friend of mine. Okay. Yeah. I was with a friend of mine. And so we're walking over the overpass. We get to the other side. And I mean, we are, 
a block from my house. Who comes storming around a corner? It's the fucking guy on his motorcycle. He got he got off the main road, got off on an exit, and fucking found us walking. I don't know how he saw us, but he must have seen us because there was two fucking 11-year-olds just walking, like, skids to a stop in front of us, okay? We're on the sidewalk. This guy skids to a stop in front of us. Now, this guy gets off his bike, okay, he's wearing a helmet, and he may have been wearing shorts, too. It's crazy. He was wearing, like, a... Uh, a black leather fanny pack and shorts and he was wearing gloves. He was wearing black leather gloves and he gets off the bike and uh, storms up to us and he's like, did you motherfuckers throw a fucking stick off the overpass? <laughs> and of course we lied and said no because he's like a grown adult and we haven't gone through puberty yet, but we definitely don't want to get our fucking asses kicked. So we lied and we're like, no. And the dude unzips his fanny pack. His fanny pack he unzipped. Okay. Let's get that straight. Reaches into his fanny pack. And halfway pulls out, like, a silver, like, revolver. Doesn't pull it out all the way. But he pulls it out enough so we can see it. And was basically, like, basically, after that, I don't remember precisely what the guy said. But it was something to the effect of, like, are you trying to get shot? <laughs> And again, uh, we were, we said no. We're definitely not trying to get shot. And after this man brandishes a gun, which brandishing a firearm in California, that's, that's not legal. So I just, you know, in case you're wondering. Okay, so we're both just frozen in fear at this point guy puts the gun back in the fanny pack, zips it up and gets on his bike and takes off. And the scene in over the edge, (laughs) like the beginning of the movie of these, these two little fuckers shooting at the window of a passing cop car with a BB gun was like, was it was what they call triggering to me. <laughs> um, but it was funny, you know, it was good. Um, you know what? Hold that thought. I'm gonna go, uh, I'm gonna go, uh, grab a beer. And we're back. See that? Lightning speed. I don't want to be one of those podcasts that gives a shout out to their fucking alcohol they're drinking, but here we are.
I'm drinking the House of Torment Haunted Houses Pumpkin Ale. This is produced by Four Tap Fourth Tap Brewing Co-op. Located here in Austin, Texas. Mm. House of Torment Haunted Houses, which is a thing out here in Texas. And I look forward to going out to uh, House of Torment. Shout out to House of Torment. I hope I'm shouting out a cool haunted house. It would suck if I went and didn't have a good time. But um, yeah, Fourth Tap made a, a lovely pumpkin ale. All right, moving on. The uh, the rec center that is uh, held in very high regard by the town of New Granada's uh, youth um, in the land, the surrounding land, it sits on because it's sort of it's sort of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's a quick bike ride from the main part of the um, town, but it's it's sort of in an undeveloped area. And um, that just adds to the awesomeness because all of the sort of like abandoned areas um, or, just, or minimally inhabited areas of anywhere you grow up are always really, really fun. Like when I was in high school, we used to party out on, um, whatchamacallit, out in this like farmland just outside of town that was, um, I forgot what it was called. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, we used to party out uh, on this farmland that was just outside of town. And I mean, there was, there wasn't even light, like the light pollution from the town didn't make it out to where we were. It was just like completely dark. And on nights where it was a full moon, it was amazing. It was like this giant floodlight, like lighting up this farmland. And I mean, we would roll so goddamn deep out there. You know, there would be like 20 fucking cars and each car probably had you know, six, eight, ten fucking kids crammed into the back of them. And, you know, we had absurd bonfires and keggers and shit. It was it was pretty cool. And I don't remember a lot of drama really taking place. You know, it was just you know, everyone was everyone was pretty cool to each other, actually. From what I remember, that might not completely even be the case, but it was a, it was a pretty good time. I remember one time we went out there, and um, on the little road leading to uh, where we usually posted up, uh, there was a um, I guess it was like a like a honey farm. Something like that, where they had these large wooden, like, beekeeper boxes, you know, where they, the, where the honeycomb is made, where the honey is made, rather. And uh, there was, like, a bunch of them, and they were just on the side of the road. And when uh, 
me and my buddy showed up. We were driving by, and we see these dudes, <laughs> these sort of a, a party acquaintances of ours who were um, smashing the bee boxes with crowbars and sledgehammers. And we rolled up, and we were like, hey, what's up? Like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're, we're, we need firewood. And we're like, far out, dude. Thanks. Cool. All right. See you down there. <laughs> so, um, and can you get stung by bees at night? You know, I don't, I don't know. Who's ever seen a bee at night? I don't know. These guys didn't give a fuck. You know, they just needed shit to burn. Anyway, um, so in. In this town where their rec center was in this sort of out-of-the-way spot, all the surrounding area was supposed to be developed into um, (laughs) – this area was – okay, so – um, what was it? One of the characters' dads was sort of like brokering a deal where they were going to just turn it into a big industrial park. And what was supposed to go into that space was like the most fucking awesome 80s. Uh, <laughs> strip, I don't know, strip mall? What? I Basically, what was supposed to go there was like uh, a cinema, a roller rink. And a bowling alley. That sounds fucking awesome. But instead, um, some big developers from, I think, Texas came in. These fuckers from Texas came in and decided to build an industrial park. And um, when they were to do that, I uh, the the the. You know, bye-bye, bye-bye land, bye-bye fucking bowling alley and roller rink. Bye-bye movie theater, you know. And bye-bye rec center. No more rec center. That's going to go too. So, you know, the, the kids are very upset about this. So the movie basically attacks it from a lot of different angles where there's a lot of shit that the kids just are fed up with. You know, there's their fucking parents. There's the cops. There's the fact that their only kick it spot in town is going to get fucking destroyed. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna push these kids over the edge So there's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of uh, bunch of kids, a huge cast of characters here, and um, let's see, there's you know there's like the drug dealer kid, there's uh, you know there's they find a gun at one point. There's always got to be a gun. Someone just finds a gun. That's always good. That's very PSA right there. That's very, like, fucking G.I. Joe, uh, knowing's half the battle level shit. Because if you find a, you always, someone always finds a gun in the 80s. Just all, yeah, always. Someone finds a gun and then something terrible happens. In fact, 
uh, I'm going to talk about another movie here in a little bit where they find a gun. <laughs> like the entire movie hinges on the fact that they found a gun. So these kids here, they find a fucking gun. You know, you get a lot of kids fighting, a lot of kids uh, partying. Um, there's a lot of that shit, and that shit's just really good. Like, I don't know about you, but I like shit like that. Like, for instance, uh, Dazed and Confused, an Austin, Texas movie. Oh, my God. Directed by Richard Linklater. And that movie, like, such a big, memorable part of that movie is the fucking party at the Moon Tower. Like, just giant scene of, <laughs> again, teenagers partying uh, in fucking the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like, it's great. It's good shit. It's, it's an excellent, it, it, like, if you, if you have teenagers partying in the middle of nowhere in your fucking movie, your movie's probably going to be pretty good, you know? Might not win an Oscar or whatever, but, I mean, that's, that's good shit to have in your movie. Let's see what else you have. There's like, um, you know, weird little, weird love triangles in the movie. You have, um, you know, kids on fucking dirt bikes. And, uh, you know, um, kids who end up getting themselves killed by the cops, you know, because they, uh, they fucked up. Yeah, stuff like that. That's always shocking to see. You know, you you see a you see a kid get killed by some fucking adult, some fucking asshole in a badge. That's not good. But it makes for makes for a good movie. It makes for interesting uh, movie watching. And let's see. Oh yes, how? Oh my god, how can I fucking forget? So basically, this, all of the problems that have been going on in this town, all the all the kids, their vandalism, their partying, their just antisocial behavior is just, uh, now you have just a community of frustrated uh, parents, teachers, and cops. And at one point, the... Parents and uh, police and teachers, they all end up at the local school. The parents, the teachers, the police, they uh, all meet up at the local school. And the kids end up, like, locking all the doors from the outside so, the, so they can't escape. And they end up destroying the school and they end up uh, lighting cars on fire. And <laughs> blowing up cars, things like that. Like pure, uh, pure anarchy. Madness. And, um, I mean, it... it yeah, fucking the kids end up killing the you know the local asshole cop. It's pure craziness, and that's what I remember the most because I remember seeing this movie 
as a kid once or twice. And I never really pieced it together because I was too young to understand what was happening. But what I do remember is the scene where they trap everybody inside the school and blow up all their cars. I, I remember that very clearly. Um, so a lot of people get hurt. Some of the kids die. Some, you know, uh, you get you get some of the some of the adults uh, become victims of of all this of all this craziness. A lot of damage to private and public property. You you have uh well basically a bunch of the kids get caught after this like night of uh of of chaos and uh, a bunch of them get sent off to the uh the hill which is like the the juvenile detention facility in town that they were all warned about and that's where all the bad kids go they go to the hill so um you know the ones that survived end up going there at the end and it's sort of a mixed message of like like you know they're going away to like juvie but you know they're going to get out at some point and they're not going there for the rest of their lives and you get a sense that they especially from the main character you feel like you know i i they feel like they kind of got away with it you know they caused all this mad all this crazy chaos and now they're going to go get locked up but they know they're going to get out eventually and it was it was kind of worth it you know and they don't say it but it's sort of conveyed on the look of the main character's face as he's being bussed away to uh to juvie so so that's great so that's um over the edge i i definitely recommend over the edge it's got a great cast it's 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 um i mean it's definitely a um a drama it's a coming of age story but it's got it's got uh kids being shitty to each other and doing acid in class and calling each other faggots <laughs> like it's oh my god kids are the worst kids are the worst i don't know why most movies aren't about kids being awful like i don't understand you know like you watch stranger things and you're just like why aren't this should be more extreme every season should get more extreme it shouldn't get more fantastical with the sci-fi elements or whatever supernatural elements it should be the kids as they get older they become more violent <laughs> But yes, uh, Over the Edge. Look it up. It's available everywhere. It's got a cool soundtrack. It's just fun. So the next movie I want to bring up is 1980s Babylon. So Babylon 
is about a young guy named Blue, who is a Jamaican, a young Jamaican guy who's living in Brixton with his family, with his mom and stepdad and his younger brother. And him and his friends um, are part of this group who have what was referred to as sound system um, shows. How do I describe it? Basically, the it, it's a type of uh, dub reggae music that was... It was like these underground shows where they had large sound systems and they would play sound system shows that were... They were a big part of Jamaican culture in that they would have, they would play, um, they would basically have DJs, like they'd have disc jockeys who were who would play reggae, uh, ska, kind of dub music, and the DJ would talk over or sing over it, rap over it, basically. And there's, a, you know, um, before Babylon, uh, you would have uh, the Jamaican film Rockers, which is similar. Um, there's a lot of scenes that are very, the, the movie's very reggae music oriented, but that's in Jamaica. Like Babylon is in Brixton. It's in England. So it's already has this sort of these racial tensions. You know, you have these British Afro-Caribbean young guys and, you know, some of them are immigrants. Some of them were born there, you know, and they were the children of immigrants. With that sort of as your, as your base, these this like group of uh, people who just want to have, they just want to have their music culture. They want to have their music culture to themselves. And, 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 you know, and it was very, and it's competitive within that culture. And for the most part, they're left alone. It's not like they're doing these shows in like clubs where anybody can go to, you know, it was, it's very akin to like punk shows back in the day, back when punk shows would be at VFW halls and, you know, warehouses. And, the world that it's set in, there's a lot of uh, racism. A lot of racism towards uh, towards a lot of these immigrants. Um, you know, was it? There's a scene where Blue Blue works for a uh, a mechanic shop, and he has a boss who's um, he is at odds with, you know, blue, blue is maybe not the most, he's not maybe like the most punctual employee, but he definitely does more than his fair share of work at this like auto shop. And his boss is a complete fucking ball breaker. Oh, and his boss is played by Mel Smith, who, as far as I know, he does kind of, he's more of a comedic actor, but um, he was in The Princess Bride. Uh, 
he was he was like the creepy ogre looking guy who um worked in the he was like in the pit of despair i love when comedic actors play serious roles because they there's quite a few that are just really good at it like who can just get really serious let me see uh so mel smith is the our our main character's uh blues boss and he's basically a racist asshole uh blue ends up getting fired Basically, Blue uh, has a sound system crew, and they are, you know, they're they're gonna battle up against other crews, basically. But a lot of the movie's not so much about them battling other sound system crews. It's more about. Blue and his friends dealing with the racism, the xenophobia, um, the, dealing with the National Front and police. Really, it's a it's you know it's a group of guys trying to do their own thing, and they live in a world that's. That's trying to hold them down. So the thing about Babylon is when it came out, it came out at a time where movies, British films were heavily edited, heavily censored, heavily controlled. Like what got released was heavily controlled by the government and if something that was a little edgy or too violent or whatever, it would, it would usually, if it did make it out to the public, it was heavily edited. It was censored. And then it was basically sterilized and then released to the public. So (laughs) this movie came out right at that time. And if you want to know more about uh, that sort of thing, uh, there's a movie that came out, this year called Censor, and it's about a woman who is a British movie censor. And and the movie's not so much about her being a censor. There's a whole other thing going on to it, and it's a bit of a horror film. It's pretty it's pretty good. I I I recommend watching Censor. But at that time, but it was a real period of time that they were that this movie and that movie lives in, and it's it's um, during that time there was what the uh, British uh, ratings board um, deemed what they refer to as the video nasties, which was a l- list of films that were outlawed essentially, and it was movies like Evil Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, films like that. Uh, not only were they not allowed to be viewed in a lot of cases they were illegal they were illegal and people would get arrested video store owners would be arrested be thrown in jail have their businesses ruined by because they would rent possess contraband film 
ridiculous. Anyways, this uh, movie kind of suffered quite a bit from that as well. They weren't on the video's nasty list, but it did receive an X rating. It did end up getting a limited release. It did play at Toronto Film Festival in 81. And it didn't really have a proper release worldwide until recently, really. Uh, It was 2019. The Kino Lorber put out a DVD and Blu-ray of Babylon. And I first saw uh, Babylon in 2019 at Alamo Drafthouse in San Francisco. And it was great. I've heard about the movie. I've seen kind of crappy clips of the movie over time, but I never saw it. But I heard it was kind of like, I heard it described like rock, the uh, rockers meets the warriors or something, you know, and to actually see it in a theater was really cool. And to actually own a copy is pretty cool because you get all the extras that come with it. But yes, it's um, it's definitely a movie about police oppression. It's about racism. It's about xenophobia. It's it's about immigrants and the children of immigrants having to be relegated to ghettos essentially and them having to try to conduct their lives with all these sort of like social society attacking them from from all angles you know everything from racist neighbors employers police fraught with conflict but the characters are, you know, you like the characters. You like the characters. You like the relationships that they have. Like, the, And they're not perfect people. You know, they have families. They have girlfriends. They have obligations to people in their group. It's The movie is... It's a very human drama. It's a very it's a very well-made human drama and I would definitely recommend it to anyone, especially you know, especially if you like reggae. If you like reggae music, watch Babylon. It's fucking great. It's available uh well, I don't want to say everywhere, but I think it's you know, relatively easy to get a hold of at this point. And also and also with all the uh sensitive racial issues in the world today. I think having a little historical perspective from a film like this would be a nice, uh, a nice getaway from just pit of negativity. That is social media watching something like this. That's just a story about a real place in time And the hardships that, that people had to, to deal with 
and then contrasting that with today, those issues through today's lens is, uh, I think, greatly beneficial. You know, because some people would have you think that the world is worse than it is and that all is hopeless. <laughs> but I don't I don't think that way. You know, I, th- I, th- I think. For as much awfulness in the world there is, I think when given a chance, people will surprise you and people will. People will get together. Hand in hand. I think people want to do that more than they want to kill each other. Put it that way. But yes, 1980s Babylon. Look it up. Highly recommended. Okay. So I'm a big fan of this next movie. Okay. It is called Bad Boys from 1983. Bad Boys, not to be confused with the Will Smith, Martin Lawrence film where they play cops in Miami who shoot everyone. <laughs> I'm not talking about that, Bad Boys. Okay? And uh, if you like Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2 and Bad Boys for Life... And whatever other bad boy movies there are, that's great. But I am talking about the 1983 film Bad Boys starring a young Sean Penn and Rennie Santoni, who uh, you may know as (laughs) Inspector Chico Gonzalez from Dirty Harry. Another film I recommend. And also, I'm going to butcher his first name. I apologize. S.I. Morales. I don't know if it's S.E. or S.I. Morales. I'm going to say S.I. Morales. And you'll know S.I. Morales from the 1987 film La Bamba, where he plays the character of Bob Venezuela. And he was the brother of Richie Valens, played by Lou Diamond Phillips. And uh, fuck it, I'm going to recommend La Bamba as well, because that movie's fucking fantastic. And if you want a, 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 you want a good movie night, here's a good movie night for you. Watch La Bamba and The Princess Bride. Like that, That's a movie night that anyone should like, and if you don't, then your heart is filled with shit. Okay. Yes. So. <clears throat> so, uh, Bad Boys is. It takes place in basically two locations. It takes place on on the streets of Chicago, and then it takes place inside of a juvenile detention facility, and. Uh, Sean Penn uh, plays the character Mick O'Brien, who is right off the bat, you realize that he is a complete criminal thug, little shithead kid. He's purse snatching people. He's hitting old dudes over the head with 
pipes and stealing their wallets. He's buying, he's buying illegal guns. <laughs> he's fucking Ali Sheedy. I mean, you know, he's he he he's a handful. In a uh, robbery gone wrong, uh, O'Brien uh, accidentally kills S.I. Morales's little brother, and <clears throat> among other things, uh, he he gets caught and he gets sent to Rainford Juvenile Correction Facility, and because he's a minor, and. He's not quite, uh, there's a scene where the judge is like, uh, you know, because of how the laws are situated and your age, you should be going to prison with adults, but you, uh, until that changes, until those laws change, you're going to go to this juvenile detention facility. So yes, uh, S.I. Morales, uh, he plays the character of Paco Moreno and... Like him and O'Brien already are like beefing on the outside. Like they 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 have beef at school, and they're both like little criminals. Like uh, Paco has like his little gang of like him and his buddies sell drugs, and he's like an aspiring like drug kingpin guy. But I don't know how old they're supposed to be in the movie. But he can't be older than like sixteen or seventeen. They're supposed to be like kids. So O'Brien, O'Brien, uh, in a failed uh, shootout, robbery, car explosion, shit show, gets caught, gets sent to juvie. So that part of the movie basically shows him going to the jail, and you know, first day in, it's always like it's always somebody carrying in their pillow and their blanket to their cell and you know all the prisoners are like like like, like ooh, fresh meat and <laughs> all that kind of fucking thing and they have to walk this gauntlet of people spitting in their faces and throwing shit at them and um uh he basically uh sean penn you know after he gets settled in he gets uh okay so once he gets settled in um now when i first watched this okay the, uh, the kind of the main dude is uh this guy named viking and he's like this giant adult looking blonde man and i thought maybe he worked at the, at the fucking juvie hall, but he's actually one of the prisoners. So I, I, you know, I didn't realize that the first time around. I was like, oh yeah, he's, you know, you think he works there, and he's just a total fucking asshole to all the uh, all the prisoner kids. But he's actually one of the prisoner kids. Anyways, uh, he's played by Clancy Brown, who you may know from uh, Pet Cemetery Two. He's like. What was it Edward Furlong's homie's uh, fucking stepdad, who's like a cop, and then he ends up turning into a fucking uh, zombie person. Uh, he's also in um, 
And he's in Shawshank Redemption. Uh, if you remember Shawshank Redemption, uh, he, yeah, he was uh, prison guard Captain Hadley in Shawshank Redemption, and he's um, he's the uh, he's the fucking he's like the crony to the to the mayor, not the the mayor. He's the crony to the warden in Shawshank Redemption. So I mean, he's. He's a big, imposing fucking guy, and he has a very distinct voice, and he's like a he's really good at coming off like a big, intimidating, violent asshole. And in Bad Boys, he comes off like a big, intimidating, violent asshole. Cause that's what his character is. And he's sort of the he's sort of the the fucking the guy who runs the prison. He's the guy that no one fucks with, basically. And there's like a there's like a system in place where um like they they get all the contraband. They kind of deal with all the contraband that comes into uh into the fucking facility. Cigarettes and weed and weapons and shit like that. And they basically uh tax all of that shit that comes through. So, you know, if you're selling cigarettes to people, then, you know, like, uh, like the, like the head dude in the cell block takes a piece, takes a cut of that. You know, you got to answer to him sort of thing. And he's just brutally intimidates everybody to, to a, a point of comedy. There's so many random scenes where he'll just be him and his buddy. will just be walking through a crowd of people and he'll just look at somebody and just flip them off in their face for no reason. Or (laughs) he really hams it up, but it's, it's great. And, and like movies like this, you need to have a certain level of like of laughs. Um, otherwise it's just, you're, you're basically watching the fucking road, at that point, you're just watching just pure, just miserable, depressing drama. Like, you need some kind of loud douchebag who's just a giant child. So, I, I, I mean, I, they, they established right away that uh, uh, fucking, what was it, fucking Clancy... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him fucking... Well, I'm going to call him by his character's name. His character's name is... Uh, they call him Viking... Cause he looks like a giant Viking and then his, uh, his buddy, uh, Tweety, they're like the two guys who fucking run everything. And, uh, you know, they end up killing, they end up like raping and killing some little fucking kid who came in with, uh, came in on the same day Sean Penn showed up and they're just fucking assholes. And then Sean Penn one day, uh, just decides he's going to fuck them both up, both up. And he throws like some, a pillowcase full of soda cans and just just beats the shit out of both of them just completely stomps both of them completely out and thus establishing himself as the new fucking head of the cell block which he's sort of hesitant about like he didn't he has this sort of kind of little nerdy cellmate guy named Horowitz who's like this little skinny Jewish kid 
who ended up you know, like he was in there for burning down a I think a bowling alley and killed a bunch of people and he's completely not remorseful about this at all yeah he you know there's a scene where Horowitz is basically like you know you're like the main guy now you're the guy like everyone fucking answers to you now you know so you know hope you can handle that and handle it he does so while Sean Penn's establishing his shot caller status outside, uh, Paco is, let's see, he decides to get revenge on Sean Penn because Sean Penn ran over his brother and killed him. And he can't get to him because he's locked up. So uh, he decides... Uh, him and one of his one of his little gang buddies, one of his little gang buddies, decide to uh, uh, attack and rape Ali Sheedy, who's Sean Penn's girlfriend on the outside. So they rape her, and they're about to kill her, but their gun jams, and the, they get stopped by the police, and they get arrested, and. Um, let's see, Paco's buddy gets shot and then Paco ends up getting arrested and they send him to the same juvenile facility as Sean Penn. And the movie kind of explains this away by saying, oh, well, all the other juvenile correctional facilities were full. So we have to send him in to the same... Not, not just the same facility, the same exact cell block that the guy who killed his brother is in. <laughs> so it's kind of silly, you know, and I was immediately like, oh, well, why don't they just transfer some kid from one of the other places to, you know, to, you know, the Sean Penn's facility and then send fucking Paco to, uh, to that one. Just do like a prisoner switch. Why didn't they do that? Because the movie uh, requires that uh, that that doesn't happen, so <laughs> he ends up going to um, to Rainford um, Juvenile Correct- Correctional Facility, um, and as soon as he gets there, um, you know he ha- he gets settled in rather quickly. Like he has to walk through the gauntlet of everyone spitting in his face and throwing shit at him and whatever, but. He basically makes friends with uh, the Viking character guy and um, they kind of team up because they both have a mutual hatred for Sean Penn's O'Brien character and they both want to kill him. So they both are they both kind of devise a plan to, you know, uh, acquire shanking weapons and figure out how to how to corner Sean Penn and kill him. So. Um, so basically, uh, the, the whole movie, uh, actually before I jump to the end, cause I don't want to spoil too much. I just, I just want to give a general overview of the movie, but okay. So the character of Horowitz, let's go back to Horowitz. He's, uh, he's, you know, O'Brien's cellmate. He's Sean Penn's cellmate, right? He's the little Jewish kid. 
And he, they established throughout the movie that he's very handy with electronics. Like he's always uh, soldering together um, like radios and getting them to work and stuff. He's very handy. He's very, he's incredibly intelligent. He's technically proficient. And um, you see him throughout the movie and he's tinkering with this like uh, boom box. And he, and one day you see the boom box, like the, okay, Viking goes into a cell. Okay. And this boom box is sitting on his bed. And you think as you're watching it, you're like, okay, uh, Horowitz like gave it to Viking as almost like a peace offering. And, you know, Vikings like who put this fucking, you know, he asked people uh, outside the cell, like, did anyone see who put this in my cell? Who put, who put this boom box on my bunk? And nobody saw a thing. And he's like, all right. And he turns it on and it plays like music's playing. And who knows when the last time he heard music. So he's like, oh, right on. I got a fucking boom box. And he's like in a cell and he's kind of dancing with himself. And he picks it up and puts the boom box like on his shoulder. Because back in the day, that's what you did. If you had a loud boom box, you, you carried it on your shoulder. Uh, because headphones didn't exist. I don't know. I don't know why people did that. But he's sitting there, and, and, and he's he's got the boombox on his shoulder, and he's uh, and he and he's dancing in his cell, and then the thing malfunctions. It sparks, and it stops playing, and you're like, "Oh, his boombox broke," and then a, and then a secondary spark happens, and then the whole fucking boombox like explodes, and it explodes in his face. And it fucks him up badly. So, so Horowitz put a bomb, made a fertilizer, and they do set this up. But you don't really know what's going on. Like, there's one point, like, Horowitz works, he works in the agricultural department of the prison where they have, like, a farm outside and shit. And there's a bunch of, you know, uh, like, a, like fertilizer, like, like ammonia fertilizer shit. Like, the shit the fucking Unabomber used or whatever. Not the Unabomber, but uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh... So he basically made a bomb inside this fucking boombox and it exploded in a fucking horribly maimed, maimed Viking. So now he's out of the picture. So now Paco's on his own. So Paco one night decides like, okay, okay, let me back up real quick. So the whole thing was like they needed to get Paco to, they needed to get him a transfer out of that facility because the, the fucking heat between him and O'Brien is red hot and they're going to fucking kill each other at some point. And some of the other prisoners are trying to figure out like like they're betting like there's people having betting pools on like who's when they eventually do fight each other like who's gonna kill the other one so there's you know all the little fucking prisoner kids are all betting money and shit on you like who's gonna win and uh anyways so then when eventually Paco gets his transfer like papers and they're like okay you're getting transferred tomorrow and you're going to go to another facility because if you you can't stay here and fight with Sean Penn the rest of your life, that's just not going to be good for anybody. So, and also around the same time, like O'Brien basically is he gets this 
you know, he sits down with uh, fucking Chico Gonzalez from Dirty Harry, and he basically tells him, uh, you know, as as one of the heads of this place, I'm informing you that, you know, if you fucking play your cards right and keep your nose clean, don't get any fucking fights, you know, don't get any bullshit, like, you'll get out of here early. You know, your sentence will be get lessened, and you can get the fuck out of here. And he kind of, you know, they set up that, he wants to go, he wants to get out because he wants to go be with his girlfriend, Ali Sheedy, who got her face beaten in and got raped by fucking Paco. So, you know, he has this, he has a reason to be good so he can get the hell out of there. Also, people are trying to fucking kill him and people are betting on it. You know, he doesn't want to stay in this place any longer than he needs to be. So the, the, the night before Paco is supposed to get transferred... Paco devises a scheme to incapacitate uh, uh, Chico uh, Gonzalez, who's supposed to be watching the cell block, but he falls asleep and he basically fakes he fakes an injury, ends up fucking hitting uh, uh, fucking Chico in the head. <laughs> what am I calling it? Okay. Okay, so uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep calling him uh, uh, I'm just gonna keep calling him Chico Gonzalez because uh, I uh, I don't recall his uh, character's name in the in the movie. Anyways, uh, Chico Gonzalez gets um, his head fucking fucking beat in with a pipe by uh, Paco, and then he locks him inside of this sort of uh, the 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 cell block office, which is basically a giant cage. He locks him in there and they set up that he, uh, you know, built a shank and he's going to go kill O'Brien. So he goes into O'Brien's cell and O'Brien's anticipating this and he attacks him as soon as he gets inside the cell and they, they start having this fight, you know, outside the cell, they go into the main cell block area which is sort of this open space and uh, uh Paco has a knife and fucking Sean Penn is sort of unarmed and they're they're uh you know he eventually picks up like a dumbbell because there's like a there's like a little weight training area in in the cell block and they're fighting and everyone's screaming and everyone's like fucking kill him kill him and it's just a just a, a ravenous mob who've been waiting for these two to tear each other apart and they have a big fight. And then, uh, Sean Penn gets the drop on Paco and has an opportunity to kill him. And, uh, he doesn't, he, he refuses to kill Paco. And instead he gets up and walks back to his cell block to his cell rather. And, they they both get to live, and Sean Penn could eventually get out, so we can go be with Ali Sheedy, and fucking uh, and Paco's gonna get uh, you know, sent to another facility for the rest of his days, and you know, and the movie's action packed. There's so much shit going on. There's fucking drug dealing and fighting and it's like a it's a prison movie but it's like teenagers and shit and it's it's fucking great 
I definitely recommend Bad Boys. Put it on your to-watch list. So the last movie I'm going to recommend is a 1995 French film entitled La Haine. And that's French, and it means hate. And that's L-A-H-A-I-N-E, La Haine. La Haine's a, a good example, at least by today's standards of, you know, this movie... When you apply it to today, it's a good example of when when people think of the positivity of diversity, however they want to apply that, whether if it's in jobs or um, entertainment, whatever. It's like people who want diversity don't anticipate the possibility of Diversity in poor people because lying takes place at least a, a good chunk of the movie. The beginning chunk of the movie is takes place in outside of Paris and what can be described as a multicultural ghetto. It is a poor area. It is essentially uh, the projects uh, outside of Paris. Lane follows three young men. And um, you don't really know how old they are, but they're in their early 20s. They're somewhere in the 21 to, I don't know, 23 range, something like that. And it's in this... This French ghetto, and the movie takes place over uh, the span of a day. And it's the three characters are a Jewish gentleman named Vins, a Arab gentleman named Said, and Hubert, who is a black fella. Which what's weird about that is, um, Vins, Hubert, and Said are the actors that play them are named Vince Hubert and Said. So that's interesting. And it, uh, the movie uh, follows them through the span of a day. And the movie sets up right away that they all, they all live with their families. They are all relatively poor and none of them work. So they're, Young, unemployed uh, guys who don't have a lot going for them. And, you know, they're they're kind of young shitheads, too. You know, they, they lack ambition. The movie sets up that um, there have been a series of... There have been a lot of riots uh, in the area and clashes with police. And a young fellow that um, our three characters from their neighborhood uh, named Abdel has been horribly injured by the police. 
uh, during one of these demonstrations, and he may possibly die from from the beating he he took from the police. And the character of Vins, who's definitely the more temperamental character, very he's very uh, aggressive during one of the uh, past uh, police riots, basically, um, found a a lost police officer's gun. So there was word around the neighborhood that a cop lost his gun, and no one knows what happened to it, but uh, you find out that the, the character Vins uh, had it. And... Um, was holding on to it because if Abdel happens to die from uh, his injuries sustained from the police, uh, Vin's vows to he vows to kill a police officer. He, I mean, pretty much any police officer. He doesn't get too specific about uh, exacting revenge against the the, the actual officers that. Um, put Abdel into the hospital, but um, he says, you know, if they kill one of ours, we'll kill one of theirs. You know, there's a lot of anti-police uh, sentiment in the movie. Um, let's see. Uh, Hubert is a uh, is a a boxer who um um, they basically set up that the boxing gym that he trained out of uh, burnt down in a fire. And so the kind of one positive thing that he had, um, you know, was burnt to the ground, literally. And uh, Hubert seems to be the more, um, even though he's the most probably, he's the most physically capable of violence, giving his boxing training. He's the least aggressive. He's he's not. He doesn't quite have the uh, aggressive tendencies as the Vin's character. And uh, Hubert lives with his mother. He lives with his family, and all he really wants, all he really wants, is to just kind of get out of the hood. That's all he really wants, and he expresses this to his mother, and he just wants to you know, leave and find something better. Cause you know, the, the other characters, uh, the, the Saeed and Vins and all their friends, like they're seem to be perfectly content with just staying in the hood forever, you know, but, uh, you better, you know, he wants to get the hell out of there. He's, and, and, you know, the, the his boxing gym burning to the ground, just sort of, kind of pushed him over the edge where he's just like, I don't, I don't want to stay here. This is not the type of life I want to live. And you have the character of, uh, Saeed, who's a young Muslim fella. And, uh, he's sort of the, the in between, between Uber and Vince. He's definitely, not quite as crazy as Vin's, but not quite as measured and uh, as <laughs> as Uber is. This movie, this movie gets um, 
kind of characterized as sort of a plotless movie. And, you know, they, they set up in the beginning that there's been a lot of uh, violence in the streets between uh, people and the police, which something that was something that was really happening at the time. And I mean, they, the beginning of the movie actually has like actual riot footage in the very beginning of the movie. And, and, and basically the movie is like, um, you know, there's sort of this basic plot on, you know, if something ever happens to their friend Abdel, if he ends up dying because of the police, then he's, you know, they're, you know, Vince wants to take revenge out on the police, and it's not really a, a thought that's shared by uh, by Saeed, and it's definitely not, and it's it's condemned really by Hubert. He doesn't find that just killing any old cop is going to be like an eye for an eye is it's not going to bring their friend back. So there's a lot of. But other than that, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the movie of them sort of just hanging out. The, the movie's like beautifully shot. The whole movie's in black and white, and there's a lot of them just hanging out and not really doing much. Like they want to. The movie definitely puts an emphasis on these guys don't have shit going on in their lives. <laughs> And but it's shot in a way that's very interesting. It's very it's it's nice to look at. And it's another movie that has uh, a good soundtrack. You know, there's sort of little moments of kind of quiet lulls and everything kind of winds down, and then there'll be like a like a fun little music sting. You know that the like a song will come in. Like there's a there's a great Isaac Hayes song in the movie where. You bears just sitting at home smoking hash by himself, and this is a wonderful scene to put a song. There's a famous scene of some random dude in their project that's um, got a whole DJ setup, whole turntable setup in his room, and the, his speakers just point out the window. On the ones and twos, he's playing uh, KRS One's "Sound of the Police," which everyone knows that song. And if you don't know that song, you've definitely heard it somewhere at some point. And it really kind of captures... And the DJ guy who's doing the scratching and all that, like, you don't... Like, he's not even a character in the movie. He's just some guy. And um, he's probably in the movie because he knows how to do all the kind of DJ scratching stuff like that. And it looks good on camera. But um, it's just sort of like a part of the movie that kind of sets up the mood. You know, you see the music coming out of the window and then there's like this great kind of God's eye view camera shot that kind of just is like, like floating through the hood. It's, it's, it's pretty neat. Okay. So at some point, um, kind of after they establish that, and then there's like, there's, they, they show the time. Throughout the day, like randomly, they'll just show like what time it is. And it kind of drives the point that, you know, these guys will just burn a lot of daylight, just kind of doing nothing. And at one point, he, um, Vins reveals uh, that he has the missing revolver 
from uh, the police officer. You know, takes it with him for the rest of the day. He takes the gun with him. And um, let's see. Uh, they do end up, they do try to go visit Abdel in the hospital, but he's under police protection, which uh, Vince has a confrontation with um, the police who are guarding him. Now, they don't know he's armed. And, but he's armed. And it was, isn't until they, you know, after they get rejected from being able to go see Abdel and they leave the hospital, does Vins reveal that he, in fact, has the gun on him that he showed to Hubert and Saeed earlier in the day. So this this breaks out into, they, you know, they get into a big argument about this because they're like, why are you starting shit with the fucking cops with a fucking missing cops gun? You know, and you have us in the middle of that, like, what the fuck is the matter with you? Which is a completely reasonable question to ask. So, um, so they end up dipping out of town. They dip out of town and go to, uh, Paris. And, like, you wouldn't even really know they're in Paris. There's, like, one shot of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> in the whole movie. And other than that, it's like you know that they're in a city, but they could really be anywhere. But uh once they go to once they get to the city, you know, once they get to the city, things just kind of pop off. I mean, it's these guys are clearly up to no good. I mean, they go visit this uh Coke guy who owes Said some money. Um, people pull guns on each other. It's a whole fucking thing. And they miss the train to get out of Paris. So they're like stuck there for the night. They try to steal a car. Um, that didn't work out too well. You know, they get in, they get into a scuffle with some skinheads and almost shoot one of them in the head. And actually the, the, they actually, um, Get into a scuffle with a bunch of skinheads. Vins pulls out the gun and they all run except for one of them. And then the other one, they like pull aside and kind of kick his ass. And then you think that Vins is going to kill the guy. Um, he ends up not killing the guy. But uh, but that skinhead who um, was actually played by the director of the movie. So that's... It's pretty cool. Uh, his name is uh, Matthew Kazovitz, and uh, he did a pretty good job in the movie <laughs> as, as, as a racist skinhead who gets his face bashed in. He does a great job. So they end up letting the director skinhead go because, you know, he needs to direct the rest of the movie. Um, you know, they, they can't get back home, but uh, eventually morning comes, they're able to get on the train, and after this night of madness they uh, managed to get back home and they all kind of go their own ways like hey i'll see you see you guys later okay cool so they go their own uh separate ways and uh you bears gotta go you know take off in one direction and vins and uh saeed is gonna go in the other and then there is a 
plain clothes police officer who they established earlier on in the movie and he's he's kind of a you know he's a piece of shit and he's you know tormenting our main characters and other people and fuck and I and I guess I'll just you know spoil the movie but um so here's your warning now here's your spoiler warning plain clothes cop guy fucking runs down Vins and uh Saeed and um is holding him at gunpoint and Hubert runs back which he doesn't need to do but he runs back to help them and uh through a series of event of events uh Hubert basically has the gun and not Vins so he runs up on the cop and pulls a gun on him he wasn't he's not going to let his friends get arrested cop draws his gun on Hubert well actually like a second before that the cop has Vins up against the car and, and he's got his um, he's waving his gun around a lot of irresponsible gun handling in this movie by the way like if you're if you're a person who owns a, a firearm or has ever taken a firearm safety course like watching the way people handle guns in this movie will drive you insane. Uh, so the cop is basically has his gun drawn and he's got Vins up against the car. He's like, I'm going to fucking arrest you assholes and yada, yada, yada. And gun goes off, shoots Vins, blows his head off, kills him. Hubert runs up, has a gun. Now they're both in this John Woo, both pointing a gun at each other's face standoff. And the camera just floats in between the two of them, guns drawn on each other, to Saeed, who's sort of standing just kind of behind them, behind a car. And it just zooms in on his face. And you just hear a gun go off. And you can see like the muzzle flash from the gun on Saeed's face. And you don't know if the cop and you bear shot each other or if you bear shot the cop or if the cop shot you bear. You don't, re- you don't really know, but that's just sort of how the movie ends. It just ends like that. Clearly I left a lot out because I'm not trying to spoil an entire movie, but uh, the movie's got a lot of style it's got uh, a lot of social commentary that is, uh, you know, relatable to today. You know, there, there's some laughs in there. There's good music. It's a it's a nice movie to look at. And when it came out in '95, uh, Matthew Kazovitz won Best Director at the '95 Cannes Film Festival, and amongst other awards, it's a very uh, you know. It's a very good it's a very good film and I definitely recommend it. Um you know, it's it's just like the other movies I discuss. It's movies about young people who have big problems with authority, especially the police, uh government, teachers, cops and how they deal with that on top of dealing with uh, rather being poor, uh, 
you know, having a terrible home life, you know, having shitty friends living in a shitty area. Like those things are the stuff of a good drama. And sometimes you just need a, a well stylized drama an eclectic cast of characters. And Lane is one of those movies. It's, uh, it's in the Criterion Collection. So if you, um, you know, if you watch things on the Criterion streaming service, I think they have a streaming service. It's definitely on their website. Um, or if you want, or if you want to just own a physical copy of anything on the Criterion Collection, uh, Lane is there. It is there for your viewing. I did want to mention briefly that uh, this movie um, wasn't necessarily based on a true story, but it was uh, actual events, sort of uh, the idea of what the movie would become was based on um, a true story of a young guy named uh, Makome Mbuole. I'm probably butchering that, but I believe he um, he was a immigrant from Zaire, and he was um, held uh, in police custody, and he was killed in police custody. Now I've heard different stories. He was, um, um, I've heard he was handcuffed to a chair like he was sitting in a chair handcuffed i also heard he was handcuffed to a radiator but regardless he was handcuffed and he was shot by a cop in in police custody and because of that um it sparked a giant demonstration in the streets and and in the opening montage of the movie where I mentioned there was uh, footage of a of a of a riot, like a demonstration turned full on people throwing shit at each other, fiery riot. And that was after the death of another guy. Again, I'm probably gonna butcher his name, but uh it his name is Malik Olsenkine, and he was a young dude in his 20s, and he was uh, beaten by the police uh, during a demonstration. And this was even before. This was like in the late, kind of mid to late 80s. And, you know, the opening riot footage scene was was connected to to him so so uh matthew kazovitz his inspiration for the film has uh very real world roots in where he's from and that's I do like to see that in movies. I do like to see people of a certain place at a certain time who make movies about what they know. And I think that comes through. I think it adds a, you know, 
it adds a, a real legitimacy to any kind of story, especially a drama. And there's a lot of other films that are like this that I um, will maybe I'll cover some other time. Um, I'd love to, you know, get into the movies of uh, Alan Clark. Uh, his movie Made in England totally follows this kind of uh, criteria. Uh, Scum. Oh, my God. Scum is fantastic. Scum is, um, you know, it's it's very, very much in the same vein of uh, Bad Boys, the, the Sean Penn movie, and... You know, it's it's about a you know a, following a character inside of a juvenile detention facility uh, in 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 Britain, and it's and but there they don't call them like juvenile halls there. The t- there they call them um, uh, boar stalls. So, I mean, there's obvious movies like A Clockwork Orange, Romper Stomper, and even some of the like kind of like gang movies like The Warriors, like even stuff like that kind of has a young street young street guys who you know have ties to a normal life but they just keep getting sucked into criminality <laughs> because of their loyalty to their shitty friends so i can get into more movies like that but uh we are out of time today we're out of my arbitrary time. So, um, yes. If you want to see movies about uh, young, violent people who are a victim of their circumstances, go watch Over the Edge. Go watch Babylon. Go watch 1983's Bad Boys. And go watch Lion. They're all very, very good movies. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Also, um, these movies have pretty decent soundtracks as well. So if you uh, need something to listen to, check out their soundtracks. I'm a big fan of soundtracks. So um, go check them out. Especially uh, like when I saw Bad Boys. Not Bad Boys. When I saw Babylon. 1980s Babylon. I need to confirm which year I'm talking about, because I think there's a movie that's coming out soon called Babylon. Um, anyways, that movie um, has a great soundtrack, and it, it and the whole movie itself kind of, uh, if you like the movie Snatch, if you like Guy Ritchie's uh, Snatch, um, that movie is, like Babylon kind of has a, that kind of feeling. Well, I guess Snatch kind of has a Babylon-type feeling. Like, it really incorporates music, uh, really well with these sort of like stylish, smart talking, like street guys, you know. Uh, other than that, um, uh, don't forget your uh, first booster, your second booster, um, and your third, fourth, and fifth booster. And um, I'm sure at some point after the uh, end of the year, you will be required to get sterilized. Get your balls cut off, and you'll spend the rest of your waking days uh, at home, working alone, uh, watching uh, Pose and rewatching Sex Life on Netflix until you eventually die of uh, 
of vitamin D deficiency because you haven't seen the sun in, uh, in years. Okay? Okay. Well, this is the end of uh, Skeleton Factory Podcast Episode 3. Hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, I am Adam, and good night.